Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So usually at this point, uh, you hear a comic introduction uh, written by me for Kion Wolf. But she's back from she's her, she's still got her cold, but she's back at work here. But I couldn't do it today because, and I'll tell you why, because George Packer is here with us. If you subscribe, as I do, to The New Yorker, you know to worship George Packer, to read his stuff first. Uh, he is just one of the pre, he's shaking his head right now, really one of the just incredible writers about the American scene and also occasionally about things outside America. Uh, and his book, The Unwinding, is really this remarkable, remarkable piece of journalism. It really is uh, um, an amazing piece of storytelling about what's happening to the American economy and to the plight of people trying to function within the American economy. That said, I'm really depressed. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so depressed. <laughs> after reading this book. Not that it contained a lot of things that I wasn't aware of, but just seeing them in, in aggregate told from such a human perspective. I think uh, Dwight uh, Gardner from the New York Times said it was like having the flu for three days uh, reading this book. So uh, I, I, I object. You object? I, I object. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to object. Okay. I want you to push back right now, George Backer. Well, thanks for those really kind words until the <laughs> flu depression part. Well, I know that's not exactly a blurb somehow. Yeah. Um, I I think there is something to be inspired by in the unwinding, which is the the resilience, the resourcefulness, um, the basic decency of the main people in the oh, book. Oh yeah, the, uh, and the indomitability of the human spirit in the face of yeah, yeah, insuperable odds. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, and maybe something in the American spirit that keeps us from quitting or keeps us from accepting that. Uh, it's just going to be bad from here on in. I think the, the main people in the book, we can talk about them. If you want, Dean yeah. Price, Tammy Thomas, they they don't quit and they, they don't uh, accept the given. They they keep remaking themselves and, uh, and, and moving into the future, which is where they live. Right. And it is true. And setback after setback, they don't quit. And by the end, I mean, I'm happy to see Dean Price has what? Looks like a pretty good idea. So, uh, but I don't want to spoil it. Like, people should have to, that we, we shouldn't spoil that part of it. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing on uh, today's show. We're going to talk about uh, George Packer's book, and we're, talk, we're going to talk about the essential argument that he's making in the book, although he doesn't really argue much in the book. He just shows you rather than tells you. Joining us also is Jim Tankersley, uh, an econ- economic policy correspondent for The Washington Post. Annie Lowry has been with us before. I believe she is a native of this area. She covers politics and economic policy for New York Magazine. Uh, all of them are here. We also welcome your phone calls and participation. It's that kind of show. We're live here in the afternoon. You can call in at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You can also tweet at us at WNPR, Colin. So, um, so, well, actually, let's pick one of your indomitable people. There's three main people here and other people whose stories are, are told in, in lesser detail. There's uh, also the story of the city of Tampa and a whole bunch of people uh, within that framework. But, um, uh, well, let's, let's talk about Tammy Thomas. Let's, let's t- give, us, give us a little nutshell uh, portrait of Tammy Thomas, one of your big protagonists. Right. So I, I wanted to cover certain parts of 
American life over the last generation, and one of them was the Rust Belt and deindustrialization, which has been a huge, important, but kind of forgotten story because it happened a while ago, and it just part of the landscape now, literally, the, the boarded up, the rusting, uh, the, you know, the old industries that are no longer there. She's from Youngstown, Ohio, and her life coincided with the death of Youngstown. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's too strong a word. It may be that it can be reborn, but during her adult life, Youngstown lost its steel industry, actually beginning when she was a teenager, in such rapid order that it, it made Detroit you know, look like a thousand year decline. Mm-hmm. Um, all the major mills closed in the late 70s and early 80s. 50,000 jobs disappeared in a rather small population area. Gangs, arson, uh, incredible high rates of crime, vacancies. Uh, so that now Youngstown is about a third to a quarter of the population it was when Tammy Thomas was a, was a girl. Um, her mother was uh, a heroin addict, and uh, Tammy was mainly raised by her great-grandmother, who supported her by cleaning the homes of wealthy white people in uh, on the north side of Youngstown. Tammy graduated from high school and managed to survive by getting one of the last industrial jobs available, which was in an auto parts factory uh, assembly line, um, making wiring harnesses for GM cars, and she raised three children by herself and got them all educated and safe and eventually out of Youngstown because she had one of these last good blue-collar jobs. She did it for 20 years, the same thing on the line, uh, different shifts, and then the inevitable happened. The job disappeared, went over, went to Mexico uh, when Delphi Auto Parts declared bankruptcy in North America, and she... um, Became, she, she had to remake herself in middle age, in her 40s, and she became a community organizer, which is what she was doing when I met her, trying to get people in Youngstown to um, figure out ways to hold their own leaders' feet to the fire and to get things done in their neighborhoods like tearing down vacant houses, like bringing in grocery stores, uh, like urban farming, basic stuff that um, showed that she had not given up on this place that a lot of people had abandoned. So I, I want to weave in some of our other guests here when we, as we talk about this. And there, there are some amazing stories here, although maybe just to put a button on, on the story that you just told. And there's also this very sort of odd, ghostly uh, scene near the end where uh, Tammy Thomas uh, in her youth for a while, because her mother is basically a domestic for some rel- relatively wealthy people, lives in what she thinks of as his mansion. And, and then everybody from the family dies uh, and they still stay at the mansion. They're sort of caretakers for a little while. And, and Tammy. Tammy learns to ride a bike by biking around in this empty dining room, and it's all very Miss Havisham or something. And and um, but then near the end, she goes back to visit that house, and somehow or other, first of all, like many things from our childhood, it isn't as big as we she remembers it, and it isn't as grand. But more than that, um, a, a different kind of white. Middle, slightly more middle class American is living in that house right now, and in this that world that that world which to her looked like some version of Gatsby back in the day is pretty much in the jaws of the same process that she that that she has been in for most of her life. It seems maybe at a different stage of mastication though. Yeah, you you described it really beautifully. I mean, the house was owned by the president of one of the steel companies, so a titan of Youngstown. 
Uh, as steel left and those families left and money left Youngstown, some of those houses became empty. They're on the north side of town. Tammy spent a year of her life after the death of the owner of the mill living in that house because her great-grandmother was kind of the caretaker for the widow as well as for the house. And um, and then bit by bit it was all sold off until the house was empty and they had to leave. So, yes, I went with her – what? 30 years later, 40 years later, back to the house. She knocked on the door, had no idea who was there. It was an elderly white woman living by herself who had, whose husband and she had bought the house uh, 40 years ago after Tammy left it. And she you know, w- began telling us stories of the gangs that were in the backyard and the high school whose violence was overflowing over her fence and – you know, her conversations with a kid who was running away from gunfire and trying to understand what he was going through. And it was as if, yeah, the one part of Youngstown that for Tammy was where the rich people lived in security had no no longer was safe. Um, and the, the last um, middle to upper class neighborhood was starting to fall uh, to the level that the rest of the city had, had reached. And I mean, she was very moved by it. And there was a connection between her and this woman. They... They had a spark between them that was really something to see. I, I, I don't know that there's much to make of it beyond that, but for me it was a very moving It was a moving visit. scene. It was a moving and, and kind of had a ghostly quality to it, but it was a moving scene. All right, I'm already feeling less depressed. Um, and and it, uh, I'm, I'm running off a ghostly scene. That's actually what's making me feel better. So, um, so Jim Tankersley, I, I think you're familiar with uh, George Packer's book, The, the Unwinding. And, and to me, reading it, uh, he's absolutely right that the people that he writes about it do have this kind of indomitable, indomitable quality. They get knocked back. In the words of Chumbawamba, they get knocked down, but they get up again. But they also seem like these rather tiny figures on a shore where this enormous tsunami of negative economic consequence is just charging at them, you know, that and, and one of the things that one can't help wondering as you read the unwinding is, I mean, none of us wants to be, we don't want to be Charlie Brown. We don't want to be David Copperfield. We don't want to be people to whom things happen. We try to be people who control our fates and our destinies. But it feels as though in this book that the forces that that control our destinies are stronger than the average individual is. And as you look at the economic landscape, is there are there arguments against that? Are there arguments suggesting, oh, no, ultimately we can get back on this horse from which we appear to have been thrown? Uh, that's a heck of a question, and uh, <laughs> I think, and and one that uh, depressed me again. Um, you know, I I think absolutely there are is good evidence out there that um, people have more control over their destiny than they think. Um, within the confines of an economy, which is delivering um, less and less sort of fairness in in your overall destiny delivery systems, if you can think of it that way. Um, here's what I mean by that. Uh, we live in an economy now where it is harder uh, for someone who was born poor to uh, to get ahead than it was maybe uh, in the 60s, or at least it's no easier. And so uh, because of that, it is, and because inequality has increased so much and the outcomes matter so much more where you end up on the income distribution for where you were born there, it, it makes it much more um, difficult to feel like you're in control of what you can do. Now, there are some things you can do. You can get 
more education, which is correlated with a higher income. You can move to places with more economic opportunity, um, which Ohio has had less of um, throughout the last half century than it used to, but maybe is a little bit on the back on the upswing. Uh, other places have more. Uh, and the last thing you can do, I think, is to push for policy changes that maybe correct some of these big forces that uh, George is writing about and that you know Annie writes about and that I, I write about. And those that is the big problem. That's the big question in American politics right now, which is what actually has happened? What are the forces that seem to have changed the rules and, and made it uh, so different than the way we imagine America should be? And what would you do to fix that? And this is, I think, going to be the animating discussion of the 2016 presidential election once we get to the actual consequential part of it. Although, Annie Lowry, I would add to the list that uh, Jim Tuckersley just offered uh, the other question that's implicit in George Packer's book, which is, are there very many politicians who are committed to pursuing those policies, which might result in more fairness, which might result uh, result in some kind of corrective, or is the process so hamstrung uh, by the people who have a lot of power, the people who have a lot of say, that outside of Elizabeth Warren and uh, and um, Bernie Sanders, we, we we don't have any champions anyway. It's kind of a hard question to answer because uh, Republicans, I think, uh, and you know, not everybody agrees with me on this, but I think that they genuinely are more interested in these issues. Um, especially from the angle of equality of opportunity and from just a look at poverty than they were several years ago. Um, uh, so I think the, the, the but the, the proposals that they have are, are so different than the democratic proposals that makes it harder for anybody to come to some sort of common ground, even though I think that there's actually a fair amount of you know space where they agree. Um, and I think that the place that you've seen the most interesting um, and, and the biggest policy action has not been at the federal level, but at the state and local level with things like, you know, raising the minimum wage, which really does have an effect on, on inequality. Um, and even efforts to do things like, you know, uh, universal pre-K. Um, so I don't think all hope is lost if, if Washington isn't doing anything. Um, but that said, the biggest levers, uh, the tax and spend levers, uh, reside there, and it doesn't really look like those are going to move anytime soon. Um, you know, George Packer. Uh, as I was reading your book, I've been thinking. I've been thinking a lot, anyway, about sort of Scandinavian socialist democracies, and uh, I've been watching this series, a fictional series called Borgen, which takes place in Denmark. And one of the things that uh, I, I love about Borgen is that they, at least in the translation that's being used for the closed captioning, they use the term. Um, Welfare state, non-pejoratively. They're always talking about how are we going to make our welfare state work. Our welfare state, it's got to work better, you know. This is we're, we're committed to our welfare state. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I mean, I live in a country where people think Barack Obama is a Marxist, you know. I mean, this kind of fiscally conservative democratic president. Um, but I, that notion of being totally committed to the welfare of your citizens and having that being the highest value you exalt in a society is very different from what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here in your I'm pointing at his book right now is the pro, it's the product of a system that picks winners and losers and values the your ability to become a winner as opposed to a loser more highly, I think, than it does in the welfare to use that word non-pejoratively, of all of its citizens. And is that just sort of a way that we're kind of cracked irreparably? 
Yeah, I mean, to listen to Donald Trump, anyone who isn't rich is a loser. So he, he puts it more in a way more baldly than anyone else has dared to. But mm-hmm. he's probably articulating a feeling certainly that I heard quite a bit at the Republican convention in Tampa in 2012, which was a kind of religious uh, celebration of entrepreneurs and and of uh, <clears throat> corporate leaders. I think Andy's absolutely right that the Republican Party – maybe as a result of 2012, has realized that um, the 47 percent that Mitt Romney notoriously wrote off are kind of a big chunk of the electorate to uh, um, to dismiss if you're trying to win office across the country. And there are candidates and there are policies and there's language now that you haven't heard much from Republicans in, in recent decades, certainly not in the decades of the unwinding, which is basically the period from – Reagan uh, until the election of Obama. Um, so, but Dean Price, who's this the other major character in the book, and maybe the major character, he has a different idea of fairness from the one in Denmark. Maybe mm-hmm. his, and it's an old, maybe you could call it a populist idea, which is not government needs to ensure. Um, you know, a level of decency and living standards uh, that the capitalist system can't ensure. It's more a level playing field so that the little guy, the small business owner, he lives in North Carolina. He wanted to be an entrepreneur, opened a chain of truck stops, had some success, and then it began to go under because of uh, pressure from Sheets and Walmart and other competition and in the end went into biodiesel as his way of trying to create a successful company. He, his view of himself is not as someone who's looking for government to, um, to help him, even though he does get a grant from the stimulus bill in, in 2009. He sees the role of government as to prevent crony capitalism, to prevent the well-connected, the wealthy, big business from using government to advance its interests so that the little guy has a chance to survive. He truly believes that it's, a, it's up to him, that it's all about his own talent, will, dreaming. Uh, he is a real dreamer. Um, and it's a, a kind of almost a 19th century idea that uh, the government's job is simply to make sure that the, rule, the, the same rules are applied to the, to the riches, to the poor, to the big guys as to the little guys. Whether or not that's a you know, a true grasp of the way a giant, complicated society in the age of globalization actually works. That's his idea. And so it's not exactly a left or right wing idea. Um, The word I would use for it would be populist. And it's um, perhaps an idea that is, you know, fueling both some of Donald Trump's success and maybe even some of Bernie Sanders' success. Okay, so uh, but Jim Tankersley. So there's a third character in George Packer's book, Joe Connaughton. Is that his name? Jeff Connaughton. Jeff Connaughton. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeff Connaughton. So I totally mangled that. Jeff Connaughton. So, and, 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 you know, George said that it, the book kind of goes through the election of Obama. It really also goes through the 2008 collapse and its aftermath, right? And one of the questions that, that's generated out of that is, I mean, in, in terms of crony capitalism and, and wanting to, there to be a level playing field is, I mean, if there were ever 
were in modernity a come to Jesus moment about this, it would be 2008 and its aftermath. That the, here's this opportunity really for America to come to grips with the ways in which the game is kind of rigged certain ways, the ways in which not everybody is aware of even what the rules are on the underside of the monopoly, uh, you know, game box, uh, and and. It's hard to read George's book and not feel as though almost all of those opportunities were completely missed. I mean, are you do you feel as though we came out of that any better in terms of how we as a government and a society regulate all this stuff and keep those guys honest than we were going into it? Well, regulations are a funny question here because on the one hand, more regulation absolutely can prevent uh, in some cases the kind of abuses that you're talking about. On the other hand, part of the story that in particular conservatives like to tell about how the rules have been rigged against the little guy is regulations perhaps have added up to this big compliance burden on mom and pop folks who want to start uh, their own business or get a loan from a small bank. And so this is the thing that you weigh when you're listening to the different parties' stories about what's gone wrong. Now, to the specific question of what has happened that that maybe makes me feel like things are going a little better, I would say this. We... uh, massively over-concentrated as an economy in finance over the last 30 years. There's all sorts of great research that shows that we have devoted roughly double the share of of what used to be uh, our economy into finance with no better outcomes from it whatsoever. And we have too many smart people who've gone into it. And to me, one of the more encouraging things of the post-crisis period has been um, the, the employment as a share of the economy in finance is falling. And we are, and the and the size of the finances, the share of the economy is falling, and that suggests at least that maybe things are normalizing a little bit back toward a healthy level. And what that does is free people up to do better things with their talents. People at the very top of the skills distribution, smart people who can start companies, who can solve human problems, as opposed to just figuring out new ways to rig the financial piping to siphon enough money for themselves. I'm feeling better and better. But, Jim, it sounds like that is the result more of sort of a cyclical result as opposed to anything that that anybody did at the level of policy. Well, it's possible. I mean, it's also true that policy is stricter on Wall Street right now. I mean, it's not um, it's not anywhere near what a lot of the big financial reform advocates wished that it would be. But there are rules in place. There are there are new requirements for banks. There, there's, there, it has changed the game to some degree on Wall Street. Now, it's also coincided with a big boom in the stock market uh, for a lot of that has happened for a lot of reasons after the crisis. But if, if you look at Wall Street now, I don't think anybody suggests that there is no difference between the way that it operates now and the way that it operated, say, 10 years ago. Although, Annie, you recently wrote about sort of two economies, right? Um, uh, George writes about the same thing, too. There, I mean, we always divide it up between Wall Street and Main, and Main Street. So uh, react to what Jim is saying. I mean, is, are these effects felt the same way in both of those kind of hypothetical places? No, and and for a long time, for a couple of years there, the story of the recovery was basically that, that Wall Street was doing really well, the rich were doing really well. If you were kind of a holder of capital writ large, um, life felt pretty good for you. Um, and uh, in the meantime, if you were just, you know, kind of your average working Joe wage earner, um, you were probably in, in, in fairly – in fairly dire straits, you know, it, it was just even if you were employed, your wages weren't going up. The economy was growing really sluggishly. 
Um, it seems that there's actually been this kind of really interesting reversal recently um, in the sense that, that stocks have really started to cool off. There's been a lot more nervousness in the market. Uh, it looks like there's, you know, there's a major international slowdown going on that at some point is going to show up in the United States data too, um, whether that just means a slower recovery or, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say at this point. Um, whereas things have kind of started to look a little bit better for workers. Um, unemployment just finally drifted down to a level uh, that's pretty good. There's some signs that maybe wage growth is picking up, but it's really too early to say that. Um, uh, wages still aren't a great part of the economy. Um, and the truth is that the same factors that prevented uh, kind of Main Street from feeling good when Wall Street was feeling great um, should probably shelter Main Street a little bit uh, if, if we're going to go through some kind of, you know, financial hiccups um, as the Fed raises rates and, and as you have all this international turbulence. Um, but, you know, that's still kind of theory. Uh, and 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 so we'll have to see later on in the fall how that actually works out. Yeah, and any uh, one thing that we know too is that for a lot of people who live and work on Main Street, their future is lives on Wall Street, just in the sense of their retirement money, whatever yeah. paltry savings that they've got. And I, I, I'm like your typical stupid investor. I don't really understand any of this stuff very well. I'm as diversified as I can possibly be. I've got it all spread out all over the place. I trust no one. I'm the fox molder of investing, basically. Basically. And and, you know, I mean, I've watched my retirement thing kind of go down quite a bit this year. And at one point I contacted the, a guy at Morgan Stanley. I'm, I, I trust no one. So I'm not in any one place. I'm in a lot of places. And I said, well, what's going on here? Is there something you can do? And he said, well, no, not really. <laughs> He said this is basically what's happening is, you know, that what's this is what's happening to the market right now. And it's happening in a way that resists the kind of diversified planning that that you've done, you know, that just things are kind of in decline. And I thought, well, that's not a that's not a good answer. <laughs> and and yeah. so and uh, it's, you know, it's really funny, right? Like probably the easiest and fastest way for inequality to come down would be for there to be a big downturn in the stock market. It's really not the best way for that to happen. But. You know, it, it happened in 2008. <laughs> right. All right. We're going to take a break here. Uh, and uh, we want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. That's the number you can tweet us. Please tweet us at WNPR Colin. We'll be back with more of, excuse me, Annie Lowry, George Packer, and Jim Tankersley. We sent our sons to Korea and Vietnam. Now we're wondering what they were died for. Uh, we're talking to George Packer. Uh, his, he writes for The New Yorker. You know that. Uh, and he's the author of The Unwinding, an inner history of the new America. Uh, also with us, Jim Tankersley, uh, economic policy correspondent for The Washington Post, and Annie Lowry, uh, who is, I believe, uh, from this area originally, and she covers politics and economic policy for New York Magazine. So, um, you know, George Packer, the the, the principal characters of your book have lived long enough so that they do kind of remember the old covenant, the covenant that you say is frayed, if not fractured, right? That notion, if you play by the rules and you work hard and you maximize your abilities, you get the best education you can get your paws on, you know, that, that you won't have riches beyond comprehension, but you will have a good and stable life. You can enjoy that good and stable life in America. Uh, and, and, what we have now, I mean, I have a 25-year-old son who hasn't really quite launched into a career uh, yet, but I don't even know what to tell him. But A, he doesn't, the good news is he doesn't remember that old covenant. I mean, he he never really lived 
as an adult, as a, as a thinking adolescent in a time where that message wasn't already significantly in jeopardy. But it is, I'm interested in hearing from all three of you, you know, what do you say to people who are launching careers right now? What, you know, uh, what, uh, by what pole star do, do you navigate? You go first. Hmm. You're making me think of putting my eight-year-old son to bed at night, and he always asks me, Dad, tell me a story from when you were a kid, and I've completely run out of them. Uh, but maybe what I should say is, well, son, <laughs> back before Proposition 13, the California <laughs> public schools were well-funded, and everyone went to one and went on to the state colleges and universities, and it was a wonderful golden age uh, for the middle class, which is not untrue. Mm-hmm. Um One thing you have to add immediately, though, is we have become more stratified, more economically unequal, but we become more socially equal and more inclusive. I mean, there are many things you wouldn't want to go back to the 60s and 70s for if you were black or gay or female or um, another minority or all sorts of things that we've now come to think have to be, you know— We have to make active efforts to include at the table. So in a way, in principle, everyone is included at the table. But in reality, um, fewer and fewer people feel that their efforts pay off and that the system is going to give them a fair shot. What what I heard everywhere was there's no more middle class here. The system is rigged. The game is rigged. And my kids are going to be worse off than I am. And it's that last one that does give me a lot of uh, dark thoughts about uh, about the future, I don't know if my kids' future will be um, so you know, have such a pall over because they have a lot of advantages in life. But if you are born poor or born into poverty and and without much education, as as Jim said earlier, the chances of your getting out of poverty are fairly close to nil. And um, the you know what what do you say to? I was just with a, a group of high school students. Some of them want to go into journalism. There's great possibilities in journalism. There's more need for it than ever. But you have to be honest and say it's pretty hard to make a living as a journalist these days, a real living, and to do reporting, which is to me the, the essence of it rather than simply opinion writing. So there, you know, it, you have to do some fancy footwork to, uh, to think of a story that will make 16-year-olds want to, uh, you know, to, throw, to, to take that risk and throw their hat in the ring. So Annie Lowry, uh, I've come up with a, a New Yorker cartoon to run next to one of George Packer's articles, and it'll show uh, somebody who looks kind of like George tucking uh, his eight-year-old in at night, and what he'll be saying is, uh, son, sideways is the new upwards. <laughs> Um, and uh, and it, it, it seems almost like that, right? That one of the things that some of us grew up with was the notion of upward mobility. And now it's sort of, is, is lateral movement, is that the new upward mobility, Annie? So, um, you know, it's it's hard, right? You have these, these really big, strong, tidal economic forces. Um, but you do have individuals who, who overcome them and, and who move around. I think that you know, if you're giving somebody advice, which is always, I think, a hard thing to do, it's, you know, goodness, go to college, right? Uh, go to college in an industry with high wages and a lot of growth. Uh, if you can go into some kind of technical field, I think that that's probably one of the safer things that you can do right now. There's, you know, a tremendous amount of demand for that in the economy, and I think that there still will be. Um, start saving early if you can. Uh 
try not to take on too much student debt. I think there's a lot of healthy skepticism about that now. Um, but for a lot of people, it's worth it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard, right, because it's, it's both the, that it's harder to go up and down those steps and also that those steps have gotten bigger. Um, but, I mean, the kind of the, the sort of cynical flip side is, is that if you are somebody with a college degree, right, if you are um, somebody who's making, you know, decent wages coming out of college, you are fine. The economy feels really good to you, right? Like your mortgage is really cheap and your future is actually kind of bright. Um, it's just thinking about it at a societal level that it gets really depressing. Um, so, Jim Tankersley, um, I had a really great question and it just sort of slipped out of my mind. But oh, but I know what it was. So earlier you were saying that the percentage of the economy that's essentially the financial sector is actually smaller, that we're doing other things, if I understood you correctly. So what are those other things? Those other things must represent the areas of potential growth and opportunity for a new generation of working adults. Well, the big thing that we're doing a lot of is is, is actually not that. There's a lot of um, service sector growth, um, and some of that's high-quality services, professional business services, and some of that is we have more restaurants and, and more places where people earn relatively low wages um, and you don't need a high degree of skills. Um, and that's concerning. I mean, I think obviously there's been a lot of growth in high tech, and we probably need to see more of that. For all for all of the um, celebration of Silicon Valley, we probably need eight Silicon Valleys, and we probably need them to be in places where it's not so expensive to live because it prices out a lot of people who would like to climb the ladder. Um, the Brookings Metro uh, program has a really interesting study where they identify basically the, the cities around the country, the metro areas, with the most sort of cluster, the highest clusters of innovative industries. And they find that those places pay better um, compared to similar other metro areas, and not just in innovative jobs like engineers, but like janitors make more. So there is a sort of innovation solution to part of this, but we have to make sure that we democratize the opportunity for innovation and that we make sure that people can actually um, access the capital and the education and the skills that they need to, uh, to go ahead and climb that ladder. But beyond that, I mean, there, there's also a question of will we have an economy where we keep having growth and productivity and, and we invent new things and, and they make all of our lives better, but only a few people sort of get the big returns to those uh, to those new innovations. And that's what we've had in this era of globalization and technology. It doesn't have to be that way. There are other places that seem to more equitably distribute those spoils of new frontiers. And I think that that's kind of the central question we've got to answer now. How do we change that? George Packer, I know you only have a few minutes left with us. You've got to go back to Watkinson. But... Um... Uh, Jeff Connaughton, one of your uh, other protagonists, um, and he sort of bets his chips very heavily on Joe Biden, on the, this one political leader whom he thinks uh, is worth following and worth serving and worth working for. And somehow or other that cr- he finds a different political leader. Ultimately, I think that he has more faith in. But that it doesn't really work out for him. You kind of wrecked Joe Biden for me. But uh, <laughs> but I, I really didn't mean to do that. I mean, he, he attached himself to Biden very early. He heard him give a speech at the University of Alabama in 1979. Biden was all of, what, about 35 years old. And he thought, this guy's going to be the next president, and I'm going to attach my ambitions to him. And it's really the story more about how Washington works. So Biden runs for president in 87. Jeff Connaughton goes to Washington to work for him. That campaign comes a cropper with a plagiarism scandal. And 
Connaughton begins to feel that he's disposable, that Biden doesn't really have much respect or value for him, kind of treats him a bit shabbily, seems to treat other people that way. Really, it's about transactionality, that, that if you want to get somewhere in Washington, you find someone who's your guy. That's a phrase that Connaughton used. You have to have a guy or you have to be someone's guy. And he became known as a Biden guy long after he stopped having any affection or liking for Biden because that was his only way to have any credibility at fundraisers and cocktail parties. He ends up being a lobbyist and does much better in the private sector in Washington than he did in government, makes a ton of money, uh, becomes quite successful, and then loses a good deal of his wealth in the financial crisis of 2008 and goes back into government, this time working for Biden's successor in the Senate, Ted Kaufman, with the explicit purpose of punishing Wall Street for the financial crisis. So it's an interesting story of the revolving door, which is one of the commonest stories in our politics, and of how organized money gradually came to take over more and more of the workings of government during the the years in which the the book covers. Um, So, um, you know, I know that they're all listening, the Bernie Sanders people. uh, And the Bernie Sanders people effectively say this, George Packer, you're absolutely right. You know, that that organized money has organized government to the point where government isn't really even capable of thinking rationally on behalf of its citizens. Uh, You can't even get reasonable outcomes. Uh, Bernie is our only hope is and they like it when I say Bernie is our only hope. But I'm saying that that's something that they say. Uh, So so is Bernie our only hope? Well, I I hope not, because I don't think. Bernie Sanders is going to be the next president. I mean, I I spent years in a group called Democratic Socialists of America and went to many meetings in which someone like Bernie Sanders got up and talked and eight people were listening. And within 15 minutes, uh, three people were listening. And it's an amazing sign of the times that Bernie Sanders, who would have fit right into those meetings, has 30,000 people coming to hear him in arenas uh, around the country. But that 30,000 is it actually a rather narrow group of um, mainly educated, white, liberal, progressive uh, Americans, and there's just not enough of them to get that guy elected president. So uh, I think it's, it's really valuable that he's both hitting the issues of money and politics, corporate power, inequality, as hard as he is, um, and showing how much energy there is around those issues. In a way, you asked the question about 2008. It's taken eight years for some of the fallout of 2008 to really enter our politics at the presidential level. But that's, I think, what we're seeing in this campaign. It's delayed, but um, it's, it's welcome. All right. George Packer, thank you very much. He's going to take off. I'm going to come back with Annie and Jim uh, after this and possibly your questions as well. Don't hesitate to tweet us. We'll be right back. People pop the hood on their cars and they see stamped on electronic motor words. Made in America, made in America, made in America. Imagine, imagine. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jay Z. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff inspecting the smoldering ruins of the American dream, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, the Woo Woo Show. And now...
back to Colin. That begs for some explanation, doesn't it? So uh, I've been intrigued for a couple of years by the term woo-woo, which for the most part scientific and skeptical people use to stigmatize and denigrate ideas that they regard as unscientific. Uh, and so I'm, I'm interested in that stigmatization process and how rational it is. So we're doing something called the woo-woo show. We will have scientific people on and then people who are regarded as unscientific by scientific pe- uh, people. That's our woo-woo show. A uh, couple of three quick things. Uh, first of all, thanks to Watkinson for lending us George Packer. I'll be at Watkinson on October 7th, starting off one of my uh, seasons of Freshly Squeezed. We're going to have a conversation about whether college educations uh, are the right idea for everybody, a typical four-year liberal arts experience. Uh, is it the right idea for everybody? Would some people be uh, better off with something that's more targeted at STEM uh, kinds of skills? Would some people be better off not going to college at all or doing a very different path. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but so is $240,000, which is, I think, probably the average four-year cost uh, for a liberal arts college these days. So, um, Also, on Saturday, in a very different vein, I'll be with Ben Vereen on the stage at uh, University of St. Joseph. You can get tickets. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. Ben Vereen's going to be really fun, uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of things that we didn't talk about when we were on the radio together. And you can get those tickets at usj.edu. I think I have that right. University of St. Joseph? Yeah, at edu. Third thing, on October 20th, we're going to have a book club on the air where everybody's going to read, I don't know everybody, but a lot of people are going to read Purity by Jonathan Franzen, and then we're all going to talk about it. So uh, you might want to, you know, if you want to take part in that, uh, please get reading. Uh, we'll tell you more of that in the weeks ahead. All right, with me now, Annie Lowry covers politics and economic policy for New York Magazine. Jim Tankersley, uh, an economic policy correspondent for the Washington Post. Uh, I'm going to maybe have both of you build a little bit on what George was saying as he headed out the door. Jim Tankersley, he's saying that this this election cycle and maybe sub- subsequent election cycles are the ones in which the consequences of the 2008 collapse start showing up, start showing up as uh, genuine political questions that maybe that's why Bernie Sanders suddenly draws 30,000 people instead of 12 cranky socialists. Um, do you buy that argument that the, that there's a reckoning here? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I do, actually. I mean, I definitely think that we've elevated inequality and these questions of whether the economy works fairly for everyone as an issue steadily over the last few elections. Um, The president talked about it, you know, when he was running in 2008. We saw it in 2012. Um, I mean, I'd like to go back to what Annie very, very well has identified as the sort of two-speed economy thing and and, uh, say that, you know, it struck me earlier this year and I wrote a piece that we now have Republican candidates talking like John Edwards did in 2007. Ted Cruz talks about two Americas. And that is a really big shift. The Republicans used to dismiss that sort of talk as class warfare. Now they are explicitly playing to the anxieties of the middle class and the poor. So there is this universal acknowledgement that people do not feel like the financial crisis and the recovery affected everyone the same. And I, I, But I, whether that's, there's a reckoning for that, whether we see you know a, a lot of really populist, anti-Wall um, Street rhetoric all the way through the general election, I, I'm not sure. If we have Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, but probably not as much as if we have Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. So, yeah, you know, Annie, uh, George Packer did a um, piece for The New Yorker just a few weeks ago talking about Trump and Sanders as two different speeders of populism, but still ultimately populist statements. And I kind of wonder about all that, too. I mean, I really feel as though in um, most of the elections, the cycle cycles of recent decades, there's some somebody playing that song. I mean, Bill Clinton talked about people working harder for less. Um, you know, John Edwards. Yeah, he talked about two America, uh, two Americas. And obviously, 
uh, Barack Obama talked about, uh, to use Sarah Palin's coinage, that hopey, changey stuff. Um, You can't run for president without talking about the economic destinies of average Americans. The question is, who actually means it? Uh, And and I'm wondering if any of them actually mean it. I mean, experience would dictate otherwise, right? That it's hard to think of somebody who really got in office and really meant it and really put um, the average American worker ahead of their big contributors. Yeah, um, I think that, that, you know, history will judge Barack Obama pretty kindly here, right? So we had, um, we've had changes to the tax code. Uh, The Affordable Care Act is at its heart a a piece of redistributive economic legislation as well as health care legislation. It's really about, um, I mean, in in a kind of blunt sense, it taxes the rich and and gives health care to the poor, which is... um, uh, a big change. You know, even going back, I, I think at the very least, I think that, you know, um, George W. Bush with his tax cuts probably really did think that um, that was going to result in, in a faster growing economy that was going to be in some sense more equitable. I, I don't know that, that that's how that worked out at all. Um, uh, so I, I think that we're not at the point yet in, in this campaign that people are talking seriously about policy. I think it's going to be months and months and months until we get there, right? You still have this kind of like carnival-like, uh, you know, uh, thing going on with the Republicans where there's just so many candidates and there's so much to shake out. Uh, but then on the Democratic side, you know, I, I think that Bernie Sanders has had um, – a easily identifiable effect on on Hillary Clinton. I think she has foregrounded a lot of progressive policies uh, uh, early in order to convince people that you know she's listening to them. Um, and certainly uh, the other candidates on the on the Democratic side, um, though they're really polling much worse, you know, have done the same. So it's it's just this funny thing where you know, like I don't think that we're going to have. We're not going to be able to judge anything for months, right? At some point, these people are going to start talking about the economy, especially if some of that kind of global flu catches on domestically and and the growth that we've seen, which has been really steady, um, evaporates. Uh, then then that's going to get foregrounded. But it's been funny. The fact that growth has been so steady and the economy has been in some sense so quiet has really pushed that down. I mean, people are not talking about it as much as they were um, a couple of years ago when, when unemployment was higher and, and when things felt a lot less secure. Um, Jim Deckersley, uh, it's magic wand time. I'm going to give you a magic wand in about 60 seconds. Uh, you can you can change something. You can't really turn us into, say, Norway, but you can change something significant uh, to make things either fairer or better. Give me one change you'd make. I think that the absolute best thing that you could do to start uh, with the, with the magic wand is to just make sure that every kid starts school with the same opportunities uh, as anybody else. And I don't don't just mean having had a good preschool, but having had the same sort of supportive, read to, lots of language in childhood environment where. Um, you are able to pr- really pursue the kind of academic excellence uh, that the, all the kids around you who started off with more advantages otherwise would have. I, I think that would make a huge difference in the economy right now. 
Um, I, you know, we did a show about Finland a year and a half, two years ago. We did as much of it a show about Finland as you could do without actually going to Finland. And one of the things the education minister of Finland said to us is we are committed to the idea of everybody getting as good an education as everybody else. We don't like winners and losers. We don't like a system where some people play the game smarter and better and get better results out of it. We want everybody to get good results. We'd be embarrassed if there was a huge disparity. We don't like disparities. So that's a big difference for them. So Annie, I'll now hand the magic wand to you. uh, And what are you going to do with it? So, you know, I think that I think that Jim's idea is a really, really good one. Um, I also really, really like the idea of um, helping uh, folks from um, lower income backgrounds with wealth building starting off really early, right? I really like the idea of things called baby bonds, which is you give every infant $1,000 and put it in an account someplace and then let them tap it when they're 18, either for school or for something like a down payment. Um, uh but there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot to be done. <laughs> there's just a tremendous amount uh, that I could think that that would be kind of low-hanging fruit. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting. You know, you know, we've seen a lot of policies about, for instance, raising minimum wages, also improving the state of, of leave um, in the United States, in, in taking all of these new jobs that are being created by, like, the Ubers of the world and making sure that they have worker protections. So I think that... that you know, even if it doesn't seem so right now, that a lot of interesting stuff is going to shake out in this election. All right. Uh, well, we have to stop now because I have a, a night job at the Amazon warehouse and I've got to get over to that. So, uh, But it's been great talking to you guys. Actually, read it, it, your homework assignment, if you're listening, is read. Just look up Annie Lowry and then uh, Google uh, basic income movement because that's an even more radical idea than the one she just talked about. It's the idea of sort of streamlining the way government helps people into an idea that Richard Nixon actually kind of had back when he was Richard Nixon. He talked about a, a basic minimum income. Uh, and think about that. Richard Nixon, he had that idea. What would they do to him today for that idea? I wish I had somebody to help me say this. Mm-hmm.